Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck Podcast. Our guest today is Gina Gold, comedian, eco-feminist, and author of the sci-fi novel Blue Ormus. As a global society, we're living in unprecedented times. While a global pandemic is one beast to battle, other relevant and pertinent social issues have made their way to the forefront of our minds in the past couple of months. So if you had a chance to catch Gina's and my IG Live last week, we spent the time chatting about the importance of intersectional feminism and our mutual belief that true equality will only exist when all beings are free. So for anyone who might not be familiar, before we get started, I want to share the definition of intersectional feminism so you have the appropriate context for this discussion. So I'm going to read this. It's going to look like I'm reading this. (laughs) The term intersectional feminism was coined by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, and she recently explained the definition as a prism for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. For example, when we consider recent conversations and movements such as Black Lives Matter, the initial discussion points arose around equality, a completely valid and important discussion. However, in many ways, society measures equality as having the same rights and privileges as males in particular, and in the United States, more specifically, white males. So in other words, demanding equality at one level doesn't address inequality at all levels. And this means that blatantly racist, sexist, homophobic, etc., policies, and acts of discrimination and so on will continue to be systemic issues until we fix the root problem, which is that the systems we've built our lives around were built around a specific gender and a specific race. So that sort of being the premise of this conversation, we're going to dive into Gina's specific story, but I want to give you, Gina, a chance to share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. So um, if you want to just provide a quick introduction to who you are and, and why this conversation is important to you. Sure. So my name is Gina Gold, and thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. And I am an author. I wrote a book uh, that is in three parts. It's called Blue Ormus. The first part is called Emergence, and it is basically a sci-fi uh, women's novel. And I, my background is that I have been a storyteller and performer for many years. I, um, I'm also Jewish, so I was in a tour for a couple of years um, in a show called You're Funny But You Don't Look Jewish. And that's what I was doing before I got, I started writing the book. I was kind of going around to, with my other um, non-regular looking Jews, whatever that means, uh, fellow non-regular looking Jews to synagogues and JCCs and we would perform. And oh, so, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so black, Jewish, woman, they have so many reasons yeah. to hate me. No, <laughs> or, or so, or, or conversely, so many reasons to love you, exactly. I mean, I think that's what intrigues me the most about you, Gina, is that you are really sort of the definition of not being able to be defined, which is like a, an interesting juxtaposition, <laughs> right? Like, I think that at a glance, anybody could assume that they know something about anyone, right? And in particular, because of your race, like just the the comedic aspect of, oh, it's funny, but you don't look Jewish. You know, it's it's true. It's, it's, very, um, it's very interesting how we as a society seek to put people in these boxes. And I had this conversation with a friend of mine um, right before we aired the episode um, after George Floyd, George Floyd's murder, and um, we were saying, you know, we're we're so desperate to put people into a box when the really the the box is humanity, right? Like be human, and that's mm-hmm. the most important thing that we can focus on. So I really admire that you take a stance not only for your race but for these other elements of yourself, which are so important, and and exactly why intersectionality needs to be a conversation topic. So. Right out of the gate, excuse me, I wanted to touch on the fact that you do mention as a black woman that you your vested interest in humanity goes far beyond your racial identity. So can you share your thoughts on the importance of acknowledging that intersectionality, particularly as a female? Because I mean you have a lot of crossover in terms of what, you know, your racial identity, your religious identity, but the gender component in that can't really be ignored either. 
Yeah, um, and my ADHD kicked in, and so by the time you guys at the end of the question, what do you? What's the most important? Uh, why do you find intersectionality, the conversation around intersectionality, to be so important, um, particularly as a female? Well, you know, when I was, uh, I, I was a sex worker for five years when I was in my twenties, and I, obviously we, we were working under very oppressive conditions and um in some cases and um and and as women we wanted more equality in a more um you know more rights in the workplace like we were obviously you know like they were like basically taking money from us the managers were taking money from us um we were you know told that the, the, our breast size like you know we could only like change shifts according to breast size like all of this madness so we, you know, we came together, you know, and it got to the point where like uh, this one place I worked, they were like, okay, we're going to underline anybody that's a busty because a busty is like a, you know, means you like an extra commodity because, you know, under the idea of ecofeminism, it's like, you know, the idea that patriarchy looks at everything as a commodity, everything is, you know, for uh, capitalism. So the idea that women are now just categorized as busties or non-busties. It's just, it's a disgrace to humanity. I mean, it really is. It's, it's the most abhorrent thing to think of in just, I mean, it's obviously sort of like the, the micro level of it, but at a macro level, which you're pointing out is that that's such a small example, right? And people aren't going to see somebody who's in that type of role and advocate for their rights um, because there's so much stigma that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because my next question was actually surrounding that. Um, And I, I have to say, I was walking down the street one time in, um, in Seattle before the pandemic started. And, you know, for whatever reason, I actually like stopped when somebody paused me and was like, Hey, you know, I'm with working for Washington, you know, we advocate for workers' rights in the state. And do you want to hear about it? And I was sort of like, why, why did I stop? You know, and then, I, and then I was like, damn it, like, I don't know, sometimes my impulse just draws me back in. And, um, and when I said, okay, sure, what do you what are you guys looking for support with right now? And they actually said the rights of sex workers, like, mm-hmm. because, you know, it isn't fair that, you know, these are legitimate jobs in our society. If you are a stripper, like you deserve to have human rights and to be protected in that. And so in that moment, frankly, I was actually coming out of a therapy session, which was surrounding um, the somewhat recent sexual assault of my wife last year, which was like super like heavy in my mind and like body at that point. And so it was like almost serendipitous in a way where it seems strange, but I was like, yes, I do want to protect those people. Yes. Let me sign up. Let me make donations for this. Like I, it's important to me that people who are doing this for a living are also protected because it's, it would be, it's basically like we ignore all of the concepts of workplace harassment in an environment like that, because it, it it's very presumptuous in that, oh, well, you're doing that, then that's part of it. And it's like, that's yeah, like, they were like, isn't that what you signed up for? Like, yeah. if you start saying, oh, I'm being objectified in this way, and then people could easily say, well, what did you think? You're at the yeah. which, okay, that's fair, but it doesn't mean that I don't deserve basic human rights. I deserve basic human rights no matter where I go. And, you know, even when they, someone OD'd in the bathroom of one of the clubs I was working in. So, and so they took the doors off the bathroom as a solution because of someone ODing. We'll just stop that. We're going to put a stop to this ODing business. So they take the door off. So now we have to pee with the door, you know, with no door. And people might think you're at a strip club in the dresser. What do you care if there's a door? Yeah. I want a door. Yeah, I, that's I mean, my right to have a have a door. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's really fascinating, and and not to totally derail the conversation on that point, but I think that that's it, it was really my question was going to be, can you tell me about how that influenced your perspective on feminism in general or female empowerment and the patriarchy? Because it, like, let's be real here. I mean, those frequenting um, strip clubs or places like that are are typically speaking, male gender, right? Like, I mean, yes. it's not so, that it doesn't exist for females, but let's yeah, like call a spade a spade. It's male. It's my, it's, it's a, it's, it's there. It's men. 
that, that are coming in. Yes. So how do you feel like that experience as um, in your time as a sex worker actually like influenced your perspective on female empowerment? Um, I heard in one of your interviews that part of doing that work was to regain control for yourself. Yes. Which was an epic fail in some ways because you can't really go you know, into a shit situation and be like, I'm in control. Like that, <laughs> that's bullshit. And people, you know, sex workers can bash me for saying that I don't really care I'm too old to care I really don't care but I will say the ways that there are ways also like because life is never just one or the other it's never just uh, so it was totally oppressive and it was also the mom I there was some things not men jacking off the window that not so much but what I liked was I used to get harassed all the time like men would say stuff to me and poke at me and like even touch me sometimes and I had lost my voice because I had been poked and prodded so much growing up in Queens by, by, uh, by men and by boys my age that I literally lost my voice and I just couldn't speak when somebody would harass me. And then, you know, if someone would say, hey, hey, and if I didn't say anything, you know, the classic, then it would just be bitch. So then I, that made me really, really scared. But then when I started working at The Lusty Lady, uh, after someone followed me home one night and, and and I said, can I change my shift because someone followed me home? And the manager said, sure, you can. Well, let me, what did you do when the person was following you? And I was like, nothing. Like, what can I do? And she's like, you turn around and you say, stop following me. And I thought that was completely ridiculous. And she's like, well, why don't you practice because you're behind glass and the men are not supposed to direct the show. They're just supposed to watch. So if a man says, hey, turn around, let me see your ass or whatever. You can practice saying, hey, don't talk to me that way. Don't direct the show. Just watch. And I practiced behind glass when men were telling me, turn around, you know, and I, I would start to say, and there was like, women would say this really corny line, like, this is not Burger King. You don't get it your way. But it really stood out for me. I mean, it's that, fair, fair point. But it's fair, right? Yes, it, but it works. And so... After a, you know, after a couple of weeks of doing this, you know, I'm walking down the street and, you know, some guy was just like, hey, hey, and I ignored him. And then he was like, bitch, you know, he's just going off coming towards me. And I was like, this is not Burger King. You don't get to have it away. Fuck you. I have the right to walk in peace. Kiss my ass. Don't you ever like just went, I just went ape shit. And he, you know, he went running off. But it was like a pivotal moment for me. And yeah. it just, yes, I could get my teeth knocked in. Like, cause my friend was like, oh, well, you could get your teeth knocked in. I would rather than walk around being harassed all day and making myself small, not doing it anymore. So the lusty lady that, yes, there's some fucked up shit that went down, but you know what? That changed me. That, that, that was the turning point. And I've, I've never gone back from doing that. That's so cool. I think that's such an incredible way to help normalize also the feelings of the people who are in that position that you were in too. You know, it's very easy to objectify people when you don't feel like there is a real human there. And I yeah. think that's why the internet gets away with so much, right? Yeah. Is we we don't see the impact on that real person. And I, I imagine you're probably one of um, a smaller percentage of people who comes out of that scenario more empowered and more capable and like really pushing yourself to like see the other side of it where you're, um, you're gaining that power back and you're being more assertive. And it's, I, you know, it's hard as a female. I remember being in Amsterdam and walking through the red light district with um, a male coworker of mine and somebody else that we were with. Um, so the two men were in front and I was back with um, the other gentleman's wife and we were talking about the red light district and she said, well, surprisingly, this is actually like one of the safer areas of the city because like everybody knows what's going on. So like they do really keep monitoring up and I thought, oh, that's good. Um, but then you know, you see this woman in the window on her cell phone and she's like, oh, she's probably talking to her mom, telling her, yeah, it's fine. I'm just at work. No big deal. Like, no <laughs> idea that like her daughter is like in a window naked. Um, and so it was sort of one of those things for me where even just having that interaction and that thought about it is like, you know, people are doing this for a living. Um, I think for probably a portion of people, they're doing it because they don't have other options. I think for other people, maybe that is something that they just feel like they want to do. And 
regardless of what that is, if it's not something, if it's something that is still of your own free will, I think we need to respect that. And if it's not of your own free will, then it's a crime and we need to address that. Like that's sort of like, for me, it's like, we still need to treat all these people as humans. It's just that, is this like your right and your decision that you're making? Or is this something that is detrimental to you in like, more ways than you could even count. And yes. So it sounds like you very much like made a, a decision from your own experiences to go into this line of work initially. But it also sounds like you got to a point where this was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. This isn't where I belong. Like, can you tell me what that moment of clarity was for you? I never was comfortable a hundred percent because I always was, I was always uncomfortable with the diet, with the power dynamic. I was like, we can say this is, you know, whatever all day long, but, and this is where the feminism part comes in. So a lot of white, a lot of people that were on the front lines of fighting for sex worker rights are white women. And that, and and part of what they were saying is that this, you know, this job is just like any other job, blah, 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 maybe more so for them. But I can say as a black woman, not so much like, so it's not because, so yes, I think that sex workers deserve more rights, but to act like it's just that like, oh, but otherwise this job would be super chill. No, it would not. You're dealing with patriarchy. You're dealing with, you know, you know, misogyny and you're dealing with racism, classism, I, I, you know, um, and then just, you know, for, uh, you know, if you're for, for some, you know, gay women having to come in and do a whole put on some ridiculous wig that they don't, you know, want to put on with fake eyelashes and do this whole nother persona because if you don't do it, you don't make any money. So, and a lot of women would be like, fuck that. I'm just going to have my mohawk. I don't, you know, and you can do that, but you weren't going to make a dime and having to deal with that back and forth in their head all day. So it's like, it's not, it's not enough to just say, oh, if, if we would just, you know, have better job conditions and da da da, this job would be just like the working at the post office. Maybe for you, not for everybody else. Not yeah. for everybody else. So there's some ways in which it would intersect, like the, with the busties and not being able to call in sick unless you replace with another busty, and then you replace with another busty, and they're like, oh, that's too many girls of color on one stage, and uh, you know, it's like all, you know, so it's like. It, it's there's ways in which it intersects and there's ways in which it doesn't and for a long time because I was very involved in sex workers rights I kept my mouth shut but now I'm just kind of to the point where I'm like no okay there's things about that job that was that were awesome but overall we live in this is patriarchy bitches this is patriarchy and people would be like well in goddess times we're not in goddess times yeah. first of all you weren't there so you don't know what goddess times were like so please, you just read that on Wikipedia. Second of all, we ain't there. So how does that help? Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting too, where, I mean, I've, I watch a lot of documentaries and the concept of um, prostitution as like the oldest um, job in the world, right? It's like, well, in theory, it would have been great if that like actually gave us more of the power because in reality it does as females, right? Like it, it, right, it's like right. it, that's how you can sort of tell that history has been dictated by the patriarchy because if women are the ones who essentially hold the power to dictate if a man like gets what he needs for lack of better term, and that's in quotes for anybody who's not watching this, um, it it's to me, it's like, we actually have the control in the grand scheme of things. The problem is that the way that the world has been architected is to minimize the value of women, not just in that, obviously, but I think that that's sort of like the, the primary scenario that we think of, right? It's like, we, as women are meant to feel badly about how we look. We're meant to feel badly about how we feel. Mm -hmm. We're meant to feel badly about what we think or do if it's not exactly the way somebody expects of us. And so I think that like we've gone all this time with this sense of like the power is not mine. The voice isn't mine. Like I just have to do what I'm told to do that what should seemingly be an empowering scenario for women. If you're taking charge of a, a, situation like that sexually it's like we've 
somehow been reduced to like, well, that's like all you do. And that's the purpose that you serve. You exist to like satisfy the needs of somebody else, male, female, non-gendered, whoever. But like, that's part of the challenge when we think about feminism is that it's like, what's the origin of it? Where do we see ourselves in like, what was the breaking point where it all separated? And I was reading a book recently where it's like, you know, Adam is theoretically, you know, from a religious perspective, if Adam is, you know, the first human created and then Eve is the next human created and she eats the apple and tells Adam to eat the apple, then like she inherently is the bad person. And it's like, no, dude, Adam ate the fucking apple. Adam ate the apple of his own free will. And because he thought with his dick, now- we're all sitting here dealing with it. And I'm not a religious person really. So no, I'm not like, trying to pull on by into it, but that's like so reinforced in yes. society. That's like I was raised Catholic. I, that's yes. the story I got, you know? And it's, so it yes. blows my mind that like something that even can't be validated, right. Has been just cycling through society for thousands and thousands of years as if like, this is what we should believe. And it's like, so right out of the gate, we're reducing like women and the the power that we hold because instead of looking at it as like, well, Eve made this choice of her own free will, stupid ass Adam thought he would do the same thing, even though they were definitely told not to. And now we're all suffering Evesin. We're all, yes, yeah. we're now all suffering, yes. And look at the whole picture. If you look at even just how it was like the, the devil came to Eve in the form of a serpent. Like, mm-hmm. so it was like, again, it's like nature is being blamed and women are being blamed and then we're all persecuted because of the mistakes and the evil uh, that we have and the man is totally innocent. Like that, there's that, that you know, it's like anti-eco-feminist story. Yeah. And that's the foundation of which it's, it, you know, because, I mean, think about it. It's against nature. It's against women. Yeah. And that's the foundation of how the society is built. And this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. And that's something that I wanted you to expand on a little bit more too in this conversation, because we talked about it in the IG live, but ecofeminism is not a term that I think a lot of people are familiar with at this point. So you can, can you talk to me a little bit about that? I know it was a main topic in the book that you wrote. Um, so what does that term really mean to you? And, and why was it important for you to highlight that? Because it is something that people are going to have to get used to and start to understand more. Um. Yeah. So, so, you know, full transparency, I didn't know what it was either. I wrote the book and I sent it to this amazing editor and they said, wow, this is amazing how eco-feminist this book is. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I try. And then I'm like, <laughs> the fuck is eco-feminist? What does that even mean? You're like, that's a thing. Got it. <laughs> I was like, you know, and I, just, totally. I was even irritated. I'm like, oh, is this, is this you know, because someone else said they were eco-sexual. And I was like, what? You know, just, but then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, I wasn't trying to do that. I just wrote what I wrote. But my yeah. values, that, ex- but this eco-feminism explains my values. Like the idea that, that, you know, the way that patriarchy treats nature, uh, it's, or there's this, the way that patriarchy treats women as a commodity they're seen as property um you know to just you know to be raped and resources taken that's the same way that we treat nature and animals and that's what ecofeminism is the idea that we see the parallels between nature and women and then you know there's even like vegetarian ecofeminism which is which is like because you can't have feminism without looking at to me, in my opinion, this goes back to what you and I were talking about, without seeing how it affects all living beings, not just how it affects you, but how does it, so for me as a feminist, it's like, I want to fight for everybody's rights. That's what feminism means to me. And, and eco-feminism, the idea that I'm fighting for the right of the planet as a whole and the inhabitants of that planet as a whole. But I love the concept, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I love that a lot. And I actually have been wondering since we first spoke, because I haven't um, I haven't Googled this specific question, is to be an eco-feminist, do you feel that you have to be vegan? No, no, not at all. I don't think that, um, no. I and, and let me say this, that I, um, was a meat, I have been a meat eater all my life. And 
Um, and I considered myself an animal lover all my life. And it wasn't really got, until I got to California that I was even around vegetarians. And so, but I had decided that it wasn't for me. I, like, I can't be vegan, I can't be vegetarian. I just love meat so much. And then my friend, who's, who's just a staunch animal rights person, she's just fucking awesome. She's had a talk with my daughter about animal rights. And then my daughter said, who's, who's 14, said, I'm going vegan. And I was like, mm, that's not gonna work. You're I, like, am I gonna cook you vegan meals? <laughs> I know, I was like, and then I even had like excuses. I said, went back to my friend, I was like, you know, that's easy for you to say because, you know, and I was just, at this point I was gra like really grasping at straws. I was like, you know, you're white and um, you have a lot of resources and I'm black and I am a single mom and I don't have, I was like totally doing that. Like, just say anything. You're like, I need a reason to, to validate this. I, I, well, yeah, I, mean, I yeah, get it. It needs to be good. So I was like, and then I was like, you know, the time thing, I was like, I don't have time to be dealing with this. It's too much and worrying about protein. And I, no, if you do it, it's doing too much. Plus it's too hard. I'm not, it's no. But she was so, she was like, well, I'm not asking you to be vegan. I'm asking you to help her be vegan. So then I was like, okay. So I started helping her to be vegan. And then after that, I thought, well, I'm not going to do it because I like meat and I'm still an animal lover. And I, and I can be both. Like, I, I, I don't have to do everything. I have the same opinion. So, like, I totally get that. And I asked this question because I actually, um, one of the interviews that I did that'll be upcoming is with a friend of mine who's vegan and, like, started vegetarian. But we also spent time studying abroad together. So we had a lot of prosciutto, okay? Like, there is, yeah. like, meat happened for real. And so, for me, it was one of those things where coming out of that conversation, every time I eat something that is meat, I'm like, should I be doing this? I feel like I'm thinking too much about this. And so I've said to my wife recently, you know, like it, I'm going to try. And I said it to my friend, I was like, all right, help me make a two week vegan menu. So then I can make this for myself and I can like put my money where my mouth is. If I'm like being in Seattle, I agree with you completely on the West coast. It's totally different. Like I grew up in the Northeast outside of Philly. My mom's from New York. Right. Like I'm right, Italian. Right, There's right. a million reasons I can right. be like, I eat meat period. Right. I don't know how to feel sustained if I have not had that type of protein, but coming to Seattle, a couple of my friends are vegan. And one of them has taken me to a couple of restaurants and I'm like, Oh, this stuff's pretty dope. And I wouldn't have even known it was vegan unless somebody told me it was vegan. Right. And I think part of the misconception of that just in general, not to go like, too deep on that is just that we see it as like a very limited diet. And the reality is, is that it's not, it's just a matter of like, how, how creative can you be and like, what yes. are the things that you're doing? So I yes. imagine that's sort of what you had to do with your daughter. Yes. And then it, it, and it, it does take more work, but once I got the hang of it, it, it was, a, it was very rewarding. Every time I fed her something, I felt like I was doing something good. And for myself, I just was like, but I refuse. And then my, the, the, the way my friend was so amazing because every little thing that I did, instead of criticizing me, she just praised me. So I would be like, oh, I made all this vegan stuff for Ariel. And she would be like, you're doing great things for the planet. You're good. You're going to raise her to be a hero. You're the best. You're amazing. And I'd be like, oh, I am. Like I, and then I'd be like, well, maybe I could try Meatless Mondays. And I'm like, hey, I did Meatless. She'd be like, you are a hero. I'm like, I am? You're oh, maybe Meatless Tuesdays. I can do Meatless Tuesdays. I mean, like, I was like, I mean, talk about, I mean, it was like, did I not get enough praise as a kid? I fell right into it. But she, I mean, but it, but it was because she said, whatever you do, whatever effort you do is appreciated because I, what I didn't need is one more thing that I'm doing wrong. Yeah. I don't need that. I am a good person and I am trying. So I don't need someone throwing rocks at me because, you know, I wasn't doing a good job. And that, and having somebody not judge me and endorse what I did do and saying that what I'm doing for animals and for the planet was enough made me do more. And I that love made that. me increase it. I yeah. love that. That is so profound. It's you don't shame so people into being vegan. You don't shame people into being anything. And I think that that's such, that's such a great point. This is like the crux of the entire conversation really is like, 
do what you do because it's the right thing to do. And I, I'm with you, right? Like I, and maybe even starting with Meatless Mondays is like the best way for me to go about it. Like start to try to invest in like a slower role. And even my friend said that to me. And I think that the difference is if we feel coerced into something because somebody wants us to do it versus feeling inherently that it is the right thing to do for us, then we often have a very imbalanced sense of like trust that that's the thing that we want to do. And the reason I was pressed to ask that question of you is because I was like, am I being inherently incorrect in my statement around like, you know, equality for all beings when it's, I think part of it is an adjustment of how we view the world and how we think of things. And that um, in certain ways, animals play a part in that. And I want to allow sort of humanity to exist in the way that we do that's positive, but also be more respectful of the things that we we have been either negligent about or we've been just mishandling. And I think you see that a lot with like, how are animals raised? How are they slaughtered? Like, yeah. I don't want to think about that, but I'm certainly prompting myself to think more about that, even though it's uncomfortable because that's the whole point of any of this, right? Like we've literally gone from tell me about your time as a sex worker to should I be vegan if I want to be an eco-feminist? And also one of the things that you just said that um, rounds out a little bit into one of the other uh, questions I was thinking of was, you know, I, I think you told me that you received your ADHD diagnosis late in life. Is that correct? Okay. I just, I just did as well, like within the last year and a half. Um, my wife's been telling me we've been together almost 12 years and she's pretty much been saying it from like year one that I should have a doctor diagnose me. She's a behavioral specialist by trade. So she's actually qualified to make that statement. And I just ignored her. What I appreciate about that is I basically took my diagnosis and I was like, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about ADHD, hyperfocus, go. And like, so that's one of the beautiful things about it is you can harness that power once you understand that you have it. Whereas I think we saw it as, at least for me, I saw it as a deficiency that I didn't even really know that I had. Uh, the The name is a complete misnomer. It's not attention deficit. It's more like excessive attention disorder. Like your attention is on 9 million different things, not losing attention on one thing necessarily. But when you have that hyper-focus and you can go all in on it and you can be like, teach me what I want to know. I did that with ADHD and you made a comment about how maybe part of that reinforcement from your friend was like, oh, did I not get enough of that as a child? There's a statistic and I'll, I'll make sure I fact check this, but I want to say that by the time you're 13, if you have ADHD, you receive like 20,000 more negative um, pieces of feedback than somebody who doesn't have it. And that was super mind blowing for me and also totally tracked. Um, So I was kind of curious about your opinion. Um, You know, you, you have so many interests, you have clearly like a myriad of talents. So you've turned it sounds like a decent amount of them into your professional life. Do you think that having ADHD has afforded you the ability to take on so many different interests with seemingly an equal amount of passion? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, ADHD or any learning difference can be uh, a blessing or a curse, whether depending on how it's addressed. So because of my learning disability or learning difference was not, addressed. I also have a nonverbal learning, uh, sorry, it's hard to say learning difference, but you know what? I think it's like, people are like, don't say learning disability, say learning difference. But when you have, when it's not been addressed for many, many years and you didn't get the help that you need and you got beaten down because of it, it is a disability. Well, and it also, and also is treated like one, right? Like that's the point too, is like the way that this, you think about it, we talk about the patriarchy and the way like women are limited in our ability to function like to let's say our optimal degree um, just based on the way the system operates. I think educationally speaking, neurodiversity is the term that a lot of people use, um, which is still even gets criticized, right? Because it's like, well, what's neurotypical? Does that mean normal? Right. Quote, unquote? And it's like, right. nothing's normal. Nobody's normal. Let's just like toss that out with the trash. But at the same point in time that we don't learn in ways that other people do. I literally have no idea how I got through school with like without having the awareness of this. And it's like, we yeah. adapt. So to your point, it's like, we didn't have 
for instance, if we had a physical disability, maybe there'd be a wheelchair ramp. It's like, you got to build your own ramp or you get left behind. Like that's what ADHD is when you're undiagnosed as a kid, or even if you are diagnosed and you just don't have the resources. Right. And you don't have the resources. And that's what makes it. So like, yes, if I was 13 and I was being diagnosed and I was getting, you know, a treatment or, you know, um, like for my daughter has a learning difference. I take her to newer feedback every week because newer feedback rewires the brain all this stuff, special diet, blah, blah, blah. So we can call it a learning difference. Neurofeedback is the, sh- the bomb, by the way. And- I was going to ask what's oh. neurofeedback. So you can get into the, I'll, I'll let you finish what you're saying and then I'll yeah. tap back into that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. But, uh, but I didn't have neurofeedback as a kid. I had it as, I had it as an adult this year. Um, uh, and so it was a learning disability because um, I was beaten down because of it. I was criticized because of it. Um, and also there was such a disparity because I would test at such high levels, but then my performance would be low. So then I'd get into these gifted programs and then I'd be, you know, kicked out and then humiliated. I had, it's interesting that you said that. I had this, I had a similar experience, not to um, interrupt, but I had a similar experience. My wife literally said to me, I'm pretty sure the reason nobody diagnosed you is because you were still making it. Like you were still, right. like you were active in sports. So if you did have any hyperactivity, like that was getting directed in the right ways and you were focused because you have a schedule. And with school, I look back at how I used to take tests and the way that I read. And I think I'm like, I was literally just building workarounds because I would get to a test. And if I didn't know something, I would start to panic because like that anxiety that comes with ADHD is like, so now I'm hyper fixating on what I don't know. And I know I know all this information, but I can't like stop doing that. So when you realize that this is how you behave then you're like, okay, well, what do I do next time if that's about to happen? So you're reworking your brain without anybody knowing that you're changing all the ways that you behave. So it sounds like you had a similar experience with that. Yes. I mean, and the downside of that is that I spent so many times, so much time and effort hustling and, you know, smoke signals, screens or whatever. And like, you know, don't look, don't look over here, look over here. Like I spent so much time doing that, that I think that it, it was harmful, but I really do know how to compensate and my verbal skills are so high. And also I can talk my way out of anything. So like in computer class, I didn't know anything. And I literally would just be like, Mrs. Maxine, you are gorgeous. I mean, there's just not anybody I could think of that as gorgeous as you are you wow and she'd be like if you think that's gonna work and I would get an A every time I knew nothing and every time she'd say that doesn't work on me you can't just come in here and just say compliments and I'm like not trying to just pointing out how beautiful you are wow and I got an A every time and I'm not I'm not saying that that's great I'm not trying to say I mean I would be lying if I didn't hedge my bets that like being a good human being would also help elevate me in life because it's like, I do it because I want to be a good person. But I've said in work meetings very recently, like if we're cool, like if you're a good human and I feel like you're a good human, I'm far more apt to do you favors than I am if I feel like you're a dick. So the same thing sort of applied in school. I had a a poetry class and I love to write and I used to write poetry all the time. I was probably one of two people in that class that actually like knew anything that was going on. And there were eight people and it was super small. We had like a small liberal arts college. So there were eight people in this one class and we sit around like a, ta- a conference room table and it was an 8 a.m. So I would like never show up because I am like ADHD brain up all night. Like, and I want to yeah. sleep when I'm sleeping. Don't wake me. And so I would miss these classes. And I remember my professor saying like, you need to start coming or I'm going to have to fail you because even though you're outperforming all of these people, you're never here. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. And um, I remember my final paper writing it, like cramming it. And this is the stupid part of me in college too, is that, oh, maybe if I smoke a little weed, it'll just like get my creative juices flowing. And then I'll be like, even like, I'll be able to hammer this out more. And I was like, oh no, I definitely got too high. And now this isn't going to work at all. So I'm like halfway through the paper. I'm like, well, I'm too stoned to finish it right away. Let me do something else. And I remember yeah. writing her like a Christmas card uh, because it was like with our winter finals and you had to like hand them in as the actual documents. I remember writing her a card and just being like, okay, hopefully if this thing like doesn't round out well enough at the end, that this like gives the little nudge that I need. To, so she knows like I'm still a solid human being. I just like maybe didn't make it the way we wanted it to. Right. Yes. I get you. I get you on that completely. That's exactly it. Yes. That's exactly it. And we, 
And it's not that we are trying to walk around being that way, but you have to when you have ADD. About the weed thing, I think reading this book called um, Faster Brains, I think it's by Peter Shankman, who's an okay. ADD specialist, really helped me. Because number one, most people that write ADD books don't have it. And so they're writing like in clinical ways that if you have ADD, you're not going to be able to read that, even though the yeah. information is great. He has ADD. And so he- That's what we need. Yeah. So he's writing to people who have ADD and he's all over the place and he knows how, you know, he's just like, look at the bright lights, like just whatever. Like he tries to, you know, he, he really takes it into account. And he was like, ADHD people are looking for a dopamine hit because we don't produce enough dopamine. And so I wish I'd read that a long time ago. I realized like also finding healthy ways for me to get that dopamine hit rather than acting out in, you know, uh, crazy relationships. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, weird, that's interesting too, for sure. You I know, feel that's stuff that like you don't even realize um, that you're doing it. And honestly, in in that comment alone, I was like, yeah, totally. I mean, I my relationships prior to meeting my wife were extremely volatile because like my impulse control is practically zero, especially when I get angry. And so it's like I've already like flown off the handle before you even know what the problem is. Yes. And so like you spend a lot of time trying to also reconcile that and be like, that wasn't actually really about you, but I don't know what it's about because right. I don't have a diagnosis at this point. So I just think that like I'm sort of like off the rails. And then you feel like I talked about this with my therapist recently because her her, her son also has ADHD is said like you sort of have to understand if you're either in a relationship or you're very close to somebody with ADHD, that there's a chance that they're going to say something that they absolutely don't mean and that they would never, ever intend to say to hurt you. But right. like, but at the same time, like you feel such an immense sense of guilt and shame afterwards, because I, yeah. I literally like in tears said to her, you know, like, does this make me like an abusive person? I don't want to like think of myself that way, but am I just like neglecting that? Is that the truth of it? And she's like, no, like if you were an abusive person, you'd be doing it for control. You'd be doing it for feelings of like power and whatever. Like you're reacting to something that you don't even really have control yeah. over. So it's more about acknowledging before you get to that point. So then you don't have to have this remorse and this pain and this frustration that like the toothpaste out of the tube and you can't put it back. Yes, that's true. Learning how to manage. I mean, like, because there's the, you know, like there's the impulsivity problem where, I, you know, like shit comes out of my mouth before I have a chance. But then to think about it. But I think when I acknowledge that also I'm trying to get a dopamine hit. So then once that, once I start going, then I'm also kind of getting some dopamine and adrenaline off of the drama, but I don't want to be in the situation. And I'm also feeling shame. And I'm like, this is just, oh my God. I'm just and you're like, stop, stop, stop. But you can't because your mouth's just going already. It's too Yeah, late. but it's just, it's just too late. So now I'm, re you know, I'm revved up and I'm then the adrenaline and I'm feeding off that, but I don't want to be doing it. And then the person's like, you can see this is going to be all bad. And so it's just like, I cannot get my dopamine hits like that anymore. And just that's knowing great. That's that a great observation. Hit. And so, you know, and so if you're doing, if you're smoking weed, you, just, you really just, you also, you need to know that you're not, you can't, you cannot smoke too much because then <laughs> it's going to go the opposite way. Like you really, you just need to smoke just enough to get the dopamine you need and then just keep it fucking. My good. wife and I, she calls it my Xanax. <laughs> she's like, she's like, where's your Xanax? Go take your Xanax. She's yeah. like, it needs to like bring you like to like that level of like peace and clarity and calm, you know, you can't like, and that's one of the, I think the benefits about it being legal, um, not to get on that soapbox, but is that you actually know what you're getting. So you can actually be intentional about how right. you're- Right. So you can regulate and not embarrass. Yes. Because if it does go too far, then it, it's like with any medicine or any drug, it, it can start backfiring. Yeah. And then you're just like, you know, and then I can be like, is this real? Is this real? So the things that I do are transcendental meditation. That is huge. Yeah. Uh, I do that twice a day. Um, and, uh, and then I did uh, six to eight months of neurofeedback, which- Talk to, um, me. Talk to me about what neuro neurofeedback is. Cause you have me, you have me in entrenched in what this could mean. <laughs> it's, oh my God. It's so basically, and I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's, you know, basically electrodes are, chapped, uh, are put on your head. And I think it's about trying to get you at a certain, like there's delta waves, theta waves, whatever waves, and trying to get you on a certain frequency, figuring out what that frequency is. And so you watch a movie. It could be any movie about anything. doesn't matter. And you have the electrodes on your head. 
And I, when the movie, when, when, my, when my brain would get off of the frequency, finding out what that right frequency for you is. So when your brain gets off of that frequency, the camera is subtly, the movie is subtly changing. It's getting smaller, bigger, but it's kind of subtle. You don't really notice it. It's like, but your brain record, like, it's like, oh, I can't see that screen as well. So does but it force it, you to pay attention to it? It's like sort of what it's no, doing, it's like drawing your attention back in? No, in your brain, it's all subconscious. You're not doing anything but watching the movie and you're not doing anything. You're not even trying to pay attention. Your brain subconsciously is going, we can't see the movie. And it goes back to that frequency because it gets rewarded when you are when it's back in that frequency because it's like your brain figures out this is all subconscious you don't notice anything your brain is figuring out oh i seem to be rewarded when it when it comes back on so it adjusts it just automatically adjusts oh, on its own cool. and then the screen gets you know goes back to normal so it's training it trains your brain to be on the right frequency for you and i thought it was a bunch of hoo-ha but um my daughter started doing it and she said oh i noticed a difference so i tried it and where was that? I, if I had had that. Yeah, that's so cool. That's like really fascinating. I, I totally want to tap into that and see if this is something that I would be able to uh, look into in Seattle. I mean, I will say this too, is I think one of the benefits, I don't want to completely discredit um, where I grew up, but I think that like the more holistic approach to um, medicine and mental health on the West Coast feels um, pretty significant to me. Yes. Like, even just the fact that like, medical massage here is like a really big deal like great insurance can cover it awesome like with with mental health care like my wife and i both do um emdr i'm not sure if you're familiar with that but like yes for- yes she did and so uh so with my daughter she did one week emdr next week neuro and she just went back and forth yeah. between the two that's super cool and i feel like this is one of the really amazing things about living in the time that we live in which is that like we have this opportunity and the access to these resources uh, i agree with you like where was this when we were younger and could have used it and at the same time just being incredibly grateful that now it is available i, yeah, I struggle with yeah. it don't get me wrong like i wish it were because then it would just no, make no, everything but I, easier but like it's the same thing like i mean we don't have um we don't know what we don't know and i think right now it's like we're at sort of a tipping point and collectively with everything that's happening in the world to draw it back to like the original point of the conversation right is that like we're going through a collective trauma right now. There yeah. is global like panic and stress. And when this, I want to say all ends, but like realistically, whenever there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we start to resurface, like mental health is going to have to become a priority. And I think one of the challenges too that we face is how that needs to factor into things such as um, law enforcement and social work and that, um, you know, we think about the way things are today and we sort of limit ourselves to those constraints instead of like, well, what is it that somebody needs in this scenario? And um, I'm curious from your perspective, like, how do you see, like, what do you think could be one of the biggest benefits, and this is a very loaded question, coming out of um, the the very deep, dark trenches of the pandemic and all this racial injustice? Like, do you, do you see an opportunity for the world to shift in a better way that is realistic? Or do you think this is something that we're going to continue to fight kind of tooth and nail? Um, because it feels to me sometimes like for, for lack of better term, like a revolution is like really what we need right now. I, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I don't think that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. No, there is for some people. I think that some people are going to come out of this, um, stronger, but as a whole, I feel like capitalism has such a grip on society that um, and if you're and you're seeing this now in in terms of you know what what we actually need to be doing to stop COVID nineteen spread we can't do and have capitalism at the same time like it doesn't work well it's because so, the big because the it, people are benefiting so inherently from this this circumstance when in reality like we're completely dismissing the needs of people for like the super like the the innate needs of people for the superficial needs of people. Yes. And, and also because 
we rely on capitalism like if you don't work you don't eat so then that leaves people in a very bad place even they want to take care of themselves they maybe they don't want to send their kid to school but if they don't send their kid to school they won't be able to work and if they don't work they don't eat so yeah. it's like because we have a system that that's that's made that way now we're sending teachers back in now we said teachers are, are that's not fair to the teachers they're gonna have to go back and then they're gonna get sick so do i see a light at the end of the tunnel not not a bright enough one you're not really there'll be some great things that come out of it there will be i think there's gonna be some great things that come out of it but capitalism has a has a big ass tight grip on society and i don't really see I don't, I, how do we break, I, I how do we break free from that? Yeah. I, and how, and, and it's, and nobody, it's not like something that anybody can just do. Like you can't say to that person, well, just don't worry about it. And they're like, don't worry about it. If I, if I don't get back to my business, I'm not going to be able to eat. I don't want to send my kid back to school, but if he doesn't get the F out of my face, I can't work. You know, especially <laughs> if you've got a young one, you, you know, like I have an older kid. If she's online, she can be online. If she was seven or five, then I would have to be doing the work with her online yeah. and how he's going to do your own work. Well, that's exactly the problem, right? Like my sister just had um, a baby back in February, right before all this happened, thank God. But then her, she also has a two-year-old and she just started back at work. And I mean, I guess in some ways, thankfully they're working from home, but she also still needs to send them to daycare if there's space and it's safe enough because to your point, how do you do your job when you have a baby and a two-year-old? It's not like those, it's not like they know or they have the understanding that like you're there and you can't be attentive right. to them. And I, I have to say, I, my friends who have older children, I feel like are absolutely lucking out right now. And at the same time, I had the conversation with my my friend recently. It's like this is also a good time not to have children, you know, like knowing that knowing that I don't have to think about it because there's so much pressure on us as individuals just to manage our own daily life that adding a child into that is just such an, a really significant, um, it's, it's always a significant, significant responsibility. Let me not dismiss that, but just that like speaking on the mental health and self-care side of things, like just any individual right now, adult, child, parent, yes. non-parent, like we all have so much that we're dealing with that to add being a parent into that is challenging because not only is it the pandemic and are they going back to school, but now you've been tasked with, let me address all these super heavy issues that exist in society, such as like, again, not to act as if these aren't issues that were already present, but like they're elevated now to the point of discussion is let's talk about systemic racism. Let's talk about the uh, police brutality. Let's talk about sexism. Let's talk about the patriarchy. Let's, let's, let's talk about all of this stuff. And so it's just, there's so much stimulation happening in, with these yeah. like negative undertones that you feel like you can't do anything, but at a macro level, you're like, it's so fucking broken. And I've used the analogy with my therapist before. Where I was like, I feel like it's Shawshank Redemption and I'm Tim Robbins yeah. and I've got a spoon and all I can do is fucking dig with my little spoon and hope that I can make a difference. Now her response was very reasonable and was like, well, didn't he get out at the end? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, after crawling through like epic levels, right. It, but yes, <laughs> that, right. that's what we have to go for. Everybody grab a spoon and start fucking digging so we can yeah. get there faster. And I don't know that that, so I don't mean to sound like, you know, I want to be the beacon of hope, but I don't, I think that, but, but the good news is that even, you know, like Martin Luther King was one person, but he did a lot, right? So even if, no, I don't think there's a light globally or for humanity necessarily, as long as capitalism has such a tight grip, but we can do stuff as individuals to make big, big change. That's, so we just have to focus on that. Yeah, I and love maybe it. I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but. As capitalism, I mean, look, look what we're doing. We'd be open too soon, but I understand why, why people need it because they need to eat. Yeah. I mean, one of my best friends, is, two of my best friends, actually, back east and my friend here are hairstylists and they're single moms. And this is extremely brutal for them. And I've mentioned it in other conversations, you know, and I, they're the people that I pinpoint because they're independent business owners. They don't have the same protections that people who are in a corporate job have. And they're also potentially not getting unemployment because of how fucked the system is. So it's like, how can you be expected to do 
not only your job as a professional, but as a parent and as a human being, if you're not enabling that. And it does come back to, I think that like the dovetail that you really made is that this is not just a feminist issue. Um, You know, it's a global issue that intersects with capitalism and the way that businesses um, really sort of underpin every other decision that's being made right now. And yeah, particularly with the current administration in place, it's getting like more and more grotesque. And I often, you know, prior to my like mid twenties would have said, I'm not political. I don't really like to get involved in politics, yada, yada, yada. But like the more the conversations are happening now, it's like, this shouldn't be politics. It's fucking human rights. So like, let's start to shift gears and think about like what politics mean to us and like what these issues mean to us and start to, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. It's like advocate for these things whether or not you know what the outcome is going to be, because the more open that you are and the more willing you are to talk about this variety of issues, the more chance we have of uniting people around them and creating a bigger impact. Is that a good summary of sort of how you I think, think that's about a it? great summary. And I know that, uh, that I'm getting this all wrong, but like the, the idea of what is it, the 12th monkey or is it the 16th monkey? Which one? Oh, yeah, it, I think it's the 12th. Okay, the 12th monkey, right? And so, once the, once like there's like one monkey does a behavior and by the time the 12th monkey does the behavior then it even affected monkeys on a totally different island so they had no way of communicating with each other started doing that same behavior so i like to think of it more from a like and that feels very spiritual to me so if we think of it maybe like that like okay i can't do anything about systemic racism i can't do anything about how capitalism is fucking over everybody but if we think of it at like the 12th monkey like you know let's let's do our part you do your part you do your part maybe some sort of 12th monkey shit but i think that you make a really good point too is that um to me you know we often look at the way that the world is running and, and it has a very um we, we say that there's a separation of church and state in the United States, right? There's not, there's very clearly not. In fact, there's a very unfortunate, um, I think, illusion that there's actually more emphasis on it than there should be. And so looking at it more spiritually, more about like you as a person and taking a step back from like, what is it that you're reading? What is it that you're consuming? Like ask yourself, like, do I feel me personally, just me, feel like this is the right thing to do? Do I feel like people are being treated the way I would expect to be treated or somebody I love would be treated? And if you close the gap on those degrees of separation between people, like how much more will this issue matter to you? And I can say from my own experience, it is exponentially more than you can ever imagine. You just have to be willing to be open-minded enough to prove yourself wrong. And that's not in, that's not in, um, direct context of like the religious thing, but more in addressing like my own spirituality and my own sense of connectivity to the universe and the things yes. that we do that impact us. Like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for me or am I doing this because of an expectation that's been set that I don't really agree with? And if it's the latter, then what can I do to change that? Am I at, uh, do I have the liberty to change that at this juncture? Is it something I can't do because of another circumstance? Well, right. how can I change that? And you just start to enact those changes to your point on a smaller level, whether it's this type of change or whether it's going vegan um, or doing meatless Mondays or, you know, um, uh, supporting the rights of sex workers, like whether, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of the topics that we've discussed, it comes down to like human first. That's the way we have to behave. Humanity first. It, It matters who you are and it matters what you do. And the more that you treat your life like that, hopefully the more other people will do the same. Yes, I I agree. And I want to include animals in that because I think thinking of it like humanity, but thinking of it's like thinking of yourself as part of this planet. I mean, and I know we have to wrap up, but I just want to say the way that animals have been treated during COVID, and not that they've been treated nicely before in slaughterhouses, but the idea that when when those meat companies were closed down um, because of COVID, because there was so much COVID, yeah, they had all this extra animals. They had all these all these animals, and they just I, I roasted them alive, basically. Yeah, it's uh, and, and and I think I'm okay. no, and I'm glad that you mentioned that too because I think that that's part of it that um, 
when you said the the monkey analogy and you also on the IG live mentioned like living like a bee, think like a bee, right? I love the way that it just sort of inherently flows into your dialogue and the conversation around equal rights and that we all need to take part in saving the world and the world involves humans and the world involves the rest of life on earth. And yes. I'm so glad that we had a chance to have this conversation, Gina. I'm super Yay, excited. And I'm just really glad to have this relationship have formed, you know, uh, yeah, it, it really, it, for, it, it further validates, I think that, you know, in a time where we're so separate, we're able to still connect in really meaningful ways. And so I'm so yes. grateful that you have entered my life and are Same able here. to- I'm so grateful. Me. Um, well, I'm super excited to get this on air and have more conversations with you as we move forward. So uh, for anybody who's interested, as I mentioned, um, Gina is an author of the book Blue Ormus. Uh, Emergence is the one that's out right now, correct? You said it was a trilogy. Yes. Um, yes. So you can check it out um, on Gina's Instagram. It's at the Gina Gold Show. Gina, I look forward to having more conversations like this with you. And thank you so thank much for you. your time today. You've been amazing. Yes, you as well. Thank you so much for having me. For sure. Have a great day, Gina. Thanks so much. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. A big thank you to Gina for sharing her story and her time. Be sure to check out Gina's book, Blue Ormus Emergence, by visiting blueormus.com. You can also visit whothefck.com slash donate to support a cause near and dear to Gina, direct action everywhere, and their mission to provide care for rescued animals, defend whistleblowers, and pass animal rights legislation. Plus, make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast wherever you listen, and if you haven't yet, go ahead and share a little love by rating the show too. Until next time. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour.